Welcome to the PA is in the show created by PAs for PAs where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past. Optimal team practice is the future and physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the professional title of choice. I'm Tracy Bingaman and I'm obsessed with redefining what success as a PA looks like and what it feels like. Here you'll find the mindset shifts, systems, and processes I use to escape healthcare burnout and integrate my work into my life. Work-life balance is a myth and an integrated life where you thrive professionally, not a balancing act, is the goal here. My mission is to help you to grow into a unicorn PA who loves their job, has abundant energy, time to spare, and work-optional financial freedom. The PA is in. Welcome back to another episode of The PA Is In. Today, we have a special guest working in a super special specialty. Katie Reed is a PA working in pediatric oncology survivorship. Now, when we first started talking about having Katie on the podcast, I thought that this conversation would be, well, a little bit depressing because kids and cancer make me want to cry as a mother and as a provider. You want to stick around if that has been your impression of what it might be like to work in peds oncology, specifically in survivorship. So without further ado, here she is, Katie Reed. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. My name is Katie Reed. I am a PA and I work in pediatric oncology, specifically survivorship. So what does that mean? <laughs> so basically I take care of everyone after treatment for pediatric cancer. So all patients that make it through treatment um, see me at different time increments, um, and basically just based on the guidelines that um, are written in our research protocols for chemotherapy. Some patients need to be screened with radiology scans for five years post-treatment, um, so they'll come to me at five years after treatment. Um, some patients don't need that close of monitoring, just need lab work every few months, so they come to me sooner after treatment. Um, so it depends like what what cancer they had, what their treatment was, and sort of they see you when they're in officially in remission. They see you once they're done active treatment. Once they're done with all active treatment. So um, technically, most of these patients will go into remission while they're still being followed by their oncologist. Um, like leukemia patients, the most common pediatric cancer, those patients are technically in remission after a few months of treatment, but receive two to three years of treatment, active treatment. So those patients see me after that time period. I feel like pediatric cancer is one of these things that that family's life, that patient's life is largely defined like before cancer diagnosis, after cancer diagnosis. So you are in this after cancer diagnosis and really even further down the road after treatment. So what are you helping them to navigate and deal with like moms, dads, patients, all the things? So many things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one is just um, 
monitoring the children's growth. So some of these patients come to me very young, um, six to eight years old. So say they were treated pretty, you know, toddler almost age. Some patients come in their teen years, um, some in their young adult years. So my main priority is keeping them physically healthy and watching for some of these effects that the chemotherapy, the radiation, the surgeries they received can cause mentally is a big piece um, for the families and for the patient. Um, It's overcoming health anxiety. Um, You know, when is it coming back? When is the cancer coming back? Some of these patients do come to me after they've had two, you know, two, like uh, they've had like leukemia and then they relapsed and now they're finally off treatment and they're coming to me and they're like, okay, well, when's the next relapse coming? So there's a lot of anxiety, health anxiety. Um, there, yeah, there's so many mental health issues. We literally have psychology in our, um, multidisciplinary clinic because there's just so many layers, um, to the anxieties they have. And sometimes it's related specifically to some of their disabilities after treatment. Sometimes it's just fear of it coming back. I mean, just you name it. And I've probably seen it, unfortunately. Yeah. So you have resources that you can plug them into as they're sort of navigating this like life after cancer as a kid, which I feel like life after cancer sounds hard enough. And then you add to the fact that you are a kid as you went through your treatment, as you're sort of like, now you're a kid who had cancer. Um, and what are some of those resources? Like you have interdisciplinary clinic. So you talk about, um, okay. Yeah. So we have, um, our, our main clinic is multidisciplinary. So I have social work, I have psychology, I have nutrition, I have the oncology provider. So, um, there's myself, so one PA, one NP, and two oncologists that are in clinic. So uh, we're the main medical providers in that clinic. And then a lot of these patients need specialty care. So endocrinology, cardiology, name it, orthopedics, like just name it. And they're in that specialty. And then there's, um, you know, counseling that they can seek. We're still working, unfortunately. I'm sure most people are running into this after COVID. I think mental health, we knew that there was a shortage of providers, but I think we're really seeing it now because anxieties as a whole are up. Depression as a whole is up. Um, So we're still struggling with sort of finding some counselors. Sometimes there are group programs, but there's not a ton, unfortunately, like um, group meetings and stuff. That's one of my goals. I I would love to start something um, at my facility. Maybe not me specifically, but I'll facilitate it. (laughs) Um, I don't know that I'll consider myself a psychologist, but you know. Um, So there's those sort of things. There's also camps. So um, kids with cancer, I know a lot of people are familiar, they can go to camps and they have specifically, you know, they're aware that they're immunosuppressed and that sort of thing, but they also have survivorship camps, or at least they have a space for survivors within the camps. Um, some of those kids, cancer camps. Um, what else do they have? I'm sorry. Of course my dog barks. Uh, (laughs) we, those are our main resources that we have and I'm constantly looking for more. Um, for instance, I'm sure again in pediatrics that people are seeing transgender and some of those questions. And so we're finding that, um, finding those resources within our communities and stuff is also something that we've just started to come across. So I'm learning about it all the time. 
The PA is in is supported by Mastering the Medical Industry, a digital course made up of the step-by-step -step plan you've been searching for to get out of clinical medicine and into industry, even with zero experience, including seven hours of on-demand teaching plus access to a private Facebook community, live group coaching, and even an option for one-on-one -on -one coaching with PA and founder Rachel Elaine Jurgensen herself. This course covers it all. Head to onepatientatatime.com slash waitlist to save your spot in the next cohort for mastering the medical industry. And I feel like a lot of those things are location specific. So knowing what support groups in your area, knowing what counseling services in your area, knowing who treats kids in your area, all of those things, Correct. you know, are variable. Correct. On where you are. Yes. Yes. That's a huge piece. And that was going to be one of my big pieces of advice um, for anyone listening. That's like, where the heck do I send a patient that I've seen and it is not connected. And um, generally like bigger cities will have, you know, pediatric cancer programs and most big pediatric cancer programs will have survivorship, late effects. They're all called different things. Um, so they do have programs that you can reach out to. So I don't personally take care of kids in my practice, but what I do feel is if you had a kid who came into your office who said, Hey, I had cancer as a kid and I got this treatment or that treatment. And this was my, they are the patient is almost certainly going to know more about their care, their treatment, their recovery than you as the provider. So I think as a provider in that situation, we have a tendency of just like freezing. We're like, well, we're not going to, we're going to do anything, right? Like, cause I'm just, it makes us nervous. So what can you, you know, say to that provider who's like, oh, this person had cancer as a kid and now they're a kid or now they're an adult and I'm taking care of them for something relatively unrelated. How can we sort of get over that fear and take care of them like a regular patient. Yeah. So I always say, um, and this is, I feel like what I heard in PA school too, like common things are common, right? So just because a patient had leukemia as a kid doesn't mean when they're tired, they have leukemia again, right? Like you can't just jump to that, even though the family's going to be jumping there and all of those things. So one of the biggest things I would say is reach out to a pediatric oncology program, reach out to survivorship program if you have one locally. Um, or there is survivorship guidelines from the children's oncology group. So the children's oncology group is one of the main groups that provides the research protocols that basically the recipes for chemotherapy, for leukemia, lymphoma, name it, they're the they're the big name. They also have survivorship guidelines and they're accessible online <laughs> with no password protection. <laughs> so if you look up survivorship guidelines um, and children's oncology group, you'll find a resource there. There's really simple. I pointed out to medical residents and medical students and PA students all the time. There's handouts for families about specific conditions. So if someone's specifically asking about fertility after treatment and you're like oh good question there's little like blurbs like handouts for families that at least could start them on the pathway um and i think they're great for providers because it's at least a tidbit that you're like oh okay yeah this makes sense this Here's is quick <laughs> exactly at. something i can look at i can at least tell them this um when in doubt in pediatric cancer, checking a CBC doesn't hurt. <laughs> it reassures the family. And I, to me, I like seeing a CBC and going, see, okay, it's not leukemia again. Now we can just worry about these headaches and it's because of X, Y, and Z. Sure. 
Yeah. It, it's not always from this same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure that these encounters are fraught with a lot of feelings because of where these patients and their families have come from and what they have been through. What do you feel like is the most rewarding part of this position of like seeing these people whose lives have been, you know, forever transformed by cancer, but that now they've sort of, they're coming out the other side. So it's really cool. I've been in this position for almost like eight years now and I, I write, I, we make treatment summaries. So I basically have a handout of here's everything they had done. And I sort of, I don't like to do math on the fly. So I write their age down (laughs) and I have some that I've crossed out eight times. So I can see, I've been seeing them for years. So I have one I recently saw, you know, I started seeing her around 12 and now she's in college and just seeing the growth, seeing them become young adults. Um, I really like, there's like this turning point. I feel like it happens with most of them when they're young adult, it's broaching more adulthood. So 24, 25, where they really stop and they start to understand what I've been talking about as far as preventative health and, oh, okay, well, you told me I need to be followed by cardiology for X amount of years. And I'm realizing it's because I got that chemotherapy. And so this is going to continue. And they, they really start to get it. And it's just like so rewarding because they're they're finally a little worried about it because sometimes they're like, you're crazy. I'm not going to have that problem, you know? And they're finally like, oh, okay, I get it. I need to be on top of my health, I need to to understand it. I have this one patient who had a very serious um, stage four neuroblastoma, which is one that until recently didn't have great survival rates and still is one of the the lower survival rates amongst pediatric cancers. And he's, oh, he's like 24, 25 now. He Googles a little too much, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he finally is starting to, oh, I I wasn't wearing my hearing aids. So is that affecting my hearing now? Like I get it. I should be wearing them. He's finally starting to like put it all together. And it's so rewarding to talk it through with him and have him understand and get why I've been pushing him for taking care of his hypertension. You know, (laughs) like I'm like, you get it finally. (laughs) So that's the most rewarding part. We interrupt this broadcast with a very important announcement. You are not making enough money. Your practice and your physician do not understand the value you are adding to their patients, and therefore, you aren't earning what you're worth. If in the past your requests for a raise have been met with one single word, no. If you're working more hours than ever and seeing more patients, but you're not making any more money and you're feeling pissed about it. If you feel like you've hit the ceiling of your income band, this guide is for you. I've compiled the five most costly and most common mistakes that PAs make when asking for a raise, and I've told you how to avoid them and what to do instead. Download your free guide at tracybingaman.com slash mistakes. It must be cool to see a kid become an adult who realizes they're not a passenger in their own life, right? They are an active participant in their healthcare and that it doesn't just happen. Like you need to pick up the phone and make the appointment and go to the appointment and do what they say in order for that to be effective. Exactly. And that's what I think they... They, there's like this certain point, I don't know, everybody, it's probably a little different age, but I feel like it is that young adulthood and they're really like, 
oh, you've been saying that. <laughs> like, I get it now. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, I've been telling you, you got to do this. So it's it's really cool to see and to, to watch it happen. And they also, you know, when they first come, especially if they were really young during treatment, they just sort of sit there as the parent talks about XYZ, I'm concerned about this. And to watch the shift is fun because it's, they really like, they're like, oh yeah, like you were saying that and okay, I get it. And it, it's nice when that happens. So did you start in general peds oncology? How did you get to this very unique, very specialized? I feel like we sort of did this backwards where I usually ask the beginning, but that's okay. Um, so like, how did you get to be what you do and where did that, you know, what was that transition like? Yeah. So I, I actually started, so I liked oncology in PA school. So I was lucky enough, two of my elective rotations were in oncology. One was an adult and one was in pediatrics. And I really didn't think I would like pediatric oncology. I was sort of afraid of sick kids, you know, which I think most people are reasonable, very reasonable. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Like, (laughs) I don't know, I really I've always enjoyed oncology. So I know that piece. But out of school, I couldn't find a job. (laughs) So I worked in pete surgery. And I rationalized that putting ports in would be enough, like metaports. And it sort of was but I found myself with I like the aspect of surgery where it's like, there's a problem and you fix it. But I missed the like, well, what happened after like, how did school go the last, you know, year, like, I, I wanted to know more of the story. So I clearly knew oncology was still for me. And I found a role in um, pediatric uh, hematology oncology, and it was an inpatient role. And so I worked inpatient, which I really suggest if anyone's interested, because that's where you really see, you know, when they're first diagnosed with cancer, they're usually admitted. So they're usually inpatient. If they're really sick, they're inpatient. You know, you really see the nitty gritty of oncology inpatient. Um, so that was a great role. And I was there for six years or so. I worked directly with the residents and they sort of would dictate who my patients were. So it wasn't ideal necessarily. I tried to take, you know, the kids coming in for chemotherapy that come every few weeks. I tried to keep those kind of kids and have them learn from the new leukemia and that sort of thing. But it didn't always work out that way. So anyway, um, but I did find, so there was a resident one time who on rounds said, well, on my Make-A-Wish trip, and I kind of paused and I went, on your Make-A-Wish trip? Wait, why? what are you talking about? And she admitted that she was an APML survivor. And I said, oh, well, what do you do for that? Like, because I knew there were things you needed to watch after APML, you get a lot of anthracycline. So there's a lot of cardiac risk. And she's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't see anyone. I'm like, wait, what? Why don't you see anyone? So I really started pushing her and it happened to be the oncologist who was the survivorship um, specialist on service that week. So I sort of connected them, made sure everyone agreed that, you know, she could talk about her health and that sort of thing. And I really was like, oh yeah, like what happens after? Like who, like, where do these kids where go? Do they go? <laughs> like what happens? So I found myself, it was sort of, it makes sense. Like in my head, it was a natural progression. Um, and then it ended up the role, um, was changing the inpatient role, APP role. And I was like, what do I do? And that um, attending was like, oh, my NP just left my survivorship program. Are you interested? And I was like, yes, I've been interested in this. So it just sort of, again, it seems natural. It was not at the time, Um, but that's how I ended up in it. And I just sort of, I've loved it ever since. 
Yeah. It is so cool that even within the same specialty at the same organization that you can hold two very different roles, like inpatient rounding on kids who are actively getting chemo is totally different, super applicable, like building upon it to do what you're currently doing, but it's not the same. It's not the same schedule. It's not the same feel. It's not the same day to day. It's not the same, but you're under the same umbrella in the same organization. And that is such a cool thing about being a PA, that ability to take what you've done and become competent quickly at something else. And I'm sure there was a lot to learn. Was there a steep learning curve with survivorship as opposed to inpatient? You're nodding. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it, it's, it's different. I, I will say, I feel like parents give you a little street cred for the fact that you, that I did inpatient. So I think it does help to sort of know what inpatient is like, know what therapy is like, because then they trust you more. It's it's a strange sort of world with trust um, with pediatric patients in general, but oncology specifically. Um, so I find that sort of like helped, but learning so the, learning the survivorship guidelines um, that I mentioned. So I can I can look at a treatment plan now and sort of know like I need to worry about this, 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 this. Whereas that wasn't the case at first. I was looking back and forth constantly. Okay, what do, what do I need to do? What else do I need to look at? You know, and then just seeing survivors and seeing some of the common things we see versus the more rare things. Again, I think doing it eight years, I've seen some really rare stuff. I've seen stuff that like, oh, I have one other patient that had that. And again, you get that trust from the family, but also I sort of know the right person in the community to take them to and that sort of thing helps. Is there a warm handoff between the oncology team and the survivorship team? What is that transition like? It's not just like, you're better, <laughs> Katie. Like what, is it, like, what does it sound like for them? Sometimes it is like that. No, <laughs> we're currently working on a more specific transition. Um, and because, so our um, program, we're in a large pediatric hospital. So it's split into like, there's a solid tumor team, there's a leukemia tumor team. And amongst the teams, there's multiple providers. So all of them sort of do it different, which is frustrating in my role. Um, so what I try to encourage them to do is to warn them that, you know, like start to let them know, I'm not going to see you forever. Eventually someone else is going to see you. Um, but we've tried COVID sort of put a huge wrench in this, but I used to try to just like show up in the room yeah, for hi, their last visit and yeah. be like, hi, here's the face you're going to see now. Um, if not another member of my team, we're trying to sort of experiment with, um, giving them their treatment summaries earlier so that they know some of the survivorship, like recommendations as far as timeline for being seen and what tests and that sort of stuff. So we're working on that, but it, the best time is when it, it is when someone says, here's Katie, you're going to see Katie next time, you know, here, schedule your appointment. And they're the, they're the experts in survivorship. So when, when their oncologists really sell that we're the people they need to see that helps um, there's still some difficulty with like scheduling and stuff and like little, you know, things I can complain about. But for the most part, it's at least them warning it's coming and I try to meet them and then they come and see us and we really explain what we do once they see our clinic. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that when you've 
built that trust with that patient and their family, and then they're going to transition to see someone else for some reason that, you know, like, hey, in a couple of visits, we're going to do like warn them, warm them up, like tell them your name, tell them about you. And then because they've been together a while yeah. and they have gone through so much together, it's like forged in the fire of active chemotherapy trust. And then suddenly you're like, who's this person? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, no, it's really, it's, and I find when they really sell it, I mean that in the nicest way, they sort of sell well, it. And, they really script it well right. when they're intentional. Yeah. Yeah. It, it helps immensely. And when you trust someone and then they're handing you off to someone they trust, it, I think it helps. Um, also, I will say my schedule is one of the most like spied on schedules in our division because everyone just happens to drop by to see, you know, their favorite patients. And <laughs> I'm like, why is every why is everyone here? Oh, you just want to come say hi. I get it. Well, I actually have work to do with them, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it is it is rewarding for me too to see, you know, I had a, a patient that this is like a really serious patient. I'll use really vague terms, but he um he was really sick with um AML. And um his oncologist told me there was a night where he wasn't sure he was gonna make it through the night. And he just came for follow-up. He's almost 10 years off therapy. He's like 16 years old. And I had to I like text his oncologist and I was like, you have to come see him. And just seeing the smile on the oncologist's face is really rewarding. I know most people don't think pediatric oncology is that rewarding, but seeing that and knowing what that oncologist went through thinking he wasn't sure this patient was going to make it and now look at him it it was a really cool moment and i love being there for those moments oh, that gave me the chills it's just such a great like i think immediately you say like i work in pediatric oncology and people are like oh i could never right kids that are sick or die so no but like that you paint it in this light of like and then they thrive and then they grow up and become real fully formed human beings who like can use this experience and take it into their life it's i think it just is an important reminder that like you don't know everything about a specialty you know from the outside looking in you might say like oh i could never but maybe you could or maybe there's a situation in which it's the best part of that and you get to see you know the surviving thriving kids inside of pediatric oncology like that's amazing it's so positive it's a lot more positive than i thought it was going to be <laughs> yeah no for sure and i will i mean i won't lie there's some patients who have multiple effects from their treatment so there are the sad cases but for the most part the 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 patients are just really healthy and happy and it's it's cool to see <laughs> yeah it's so interesting to sort of peek behind the curtain and learn about as i said before we hit record a specialty that i didn't even know existed before this so i think you know using this platform to say like you can't become something that you don't know exists and so if this you know strikes a chord with a listener and they are like huh pediatric oncology survivorship. Like I didn't know those three words went together. If they have questions for you or want to reach out, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Sure. I'll just give my personal email if that's okay. So it's Katie Reed, K-A-T-I-E Reed, R-E-I-D. And it's 26 at gmail.com. And I'm happy to chat with anyone, but I think pediatric oncology is 
is difficult sometimes, but yeah, survivorship's the happier side. Um, and I really think if you have any experience in pediatrics in general, it's a lot of primary care. I'm talking, you know, I have to remember what that rash is again, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, it, they just happened to bring it up during their oncology visit. So oh, it's, a, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the, oh yeah. A lot of, oh, by the ways, <laughs> a lot of, oh, by the ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, Katie, I am so glad that you reached out. I'm so glad that you were able to share about this world and this specialty with us. So thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. No problem. Thank you. I love these episodes where we feature unicorn PAs. Honestly, they might be some of my favorite ones. And one of the biggest reasons is it gives us an inside peek into how people got into these specific positions. And no two story of found, finding a unicorn position is exactly the same. The journeys are not linear. It steps forwards and steps back. It's moves from inpatient to outpatient. And it's finding the place that suits you during the season of life that you are in. I'm so grateful that Katie was willing to come on the show and share with us what her experience has been as a pediatric oncology survivorship PA. I will see you next time on The PA Is In. Congratulations, you've just joined an awesome club. By listening to a full episode of The PA Is In, you are officially on the Unicorn PA team. Welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episode of the show. The life of your dreams exists on the other side of taking action. Keep making small shifts and keep getting better. Your life will improve, your career will soar, and you will have the confidence you need to create your own success. I will see you in the next episode. This PA is out.